I like this. I'm a little closer. Because you want a good look at this. I totally understand. Father, as we gather, we pray for your unique presence and power that is you. We thank you for meeting with us already. We pray that you continue to meet with us with your power as we study and worship together. In your holy name, amen. As a first grader in Sunday school, working hard on a, on, on a drawing, and he's, he's really working, and the teacher came by and said, oh my, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, nobody knows what God looks like. He went, they do now. <laughs> he's doing what we all do. We design the God we want. Rather than serve Jesus, we tend to create Jesus and then serve that one. We, we love the Christmas story, our Savior born in a manger. But who was he and how do we connect? That's kind of the theme of this whole series in Advent, Know Jesus. Really, who is he? Because maybe there's a breakdown. Maybe rather than knowing him, we kind of create a Jesus that we're very comfortable with and then we serve that. That's why A.W. Tozer wrote, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God might be the most important thing about you. The first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God that might be the most important thing about you. God made it really very simple. Declarations helps us understand who he is. The key goes back to that conversation. Moses asks a great, a great question to God representing in the burning bush. Moses says, who are you? Oh, I am. That's important. He didn't respond, I am whatever you think I am. I am whatever you want me to be. See, if, if we asked a friend to describe you, they, they'd give a lot of characteristics about you. And so Jesus coming in the flesh, we, we, we can look at his characteristics. For instance, he never gave up being all-powerful. He conquered disease, healed the lame, you know. He never gave up being all-knowing. He knew the thoughts of those around him. He understood the future. But the key of who he is is Isaiah 6.3. We want you to see it on the screen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is a quote. This is what angels are saying around the throne for all of eternity. Angels are declaring God over and over and over for all eternity around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God of hosts. They're not crying out, love, love, love is the Lord God of hosts. They're not crying out, just, just, just is the Lord God of hosts. Now he is loving. He is justice. But that doesn't paint the whole picture of God. The one word that paints the whole picture of God and Jesus in the flesh is holy. His love is holy. His justice is holy. It all comes back to holy. So the one born in this manger, the simplicity visited by wise men and all that, is holy. He did not give up that attribute as he came in the human sphere. So the power of the cross is holiness took upon my sin. The one that is holy took upon my filth all the way to the cross. Now, to grasp all of this, you have to realize the word holy is, comes from the Hebrew separate or to separate. So the angels for all of eternity are declaring, you are separate, you are separate, you are separate, Lord God of all the hosts. They're, they're, they're claiming over and over and over, he is separate from everything else he created. And when we see him, 
we're overwhelmed by our unholiness. When we really see him, rather than the God we designed, it overwhelms us. Isaiah sees God. He's totally undone. Look at it, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me. I am ruined. This is Isaiah. This is a, this is a good guy. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord King, Lord of hosts. Anytime we get a glimpse of who God really is, we're undone by our unholiness. He illuminates our ruin. He illuminates our sin. He, he, he puts light in our shadows. His holiness declares our need for a Savior. It's overwhelming. And holy came in a manger. The one that is separate from sin came in that manger. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Again, over and over, same thing. Take a look. Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. You cannot look upon wickedness with favor. Why? Because he's separate. He's holy. And sometimes we underestimate and almost forget that dynamic, which is the singular most important dynamic of Jesus. And once we see his holiness, it helps us to grasp some of the weird passages. You know what I mean. There are some very weird, uncomfortable passages. For me, one, one of the, more, the passages that have always kind of bothered me is the story of Uzzah. Now, in the Old Testament, they're, they're, they're putting the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant on a trailer, and it's moving. This Ark represents the holiness of God. Only the high priest can touch it. It is separate. An oxen must have slipped, and the cart begins to, begins to tilt, and the Ark of the Covenant, this most sacred thing, begins to, begins to fall off. Uzzah, I mean, good for him. He races and gets it back where it belongs. Part of you wants to say, well done. Man, I'm so glad you're alert. Johnny on the spot. Good catch. That could have fallen off. So glad you're here. God killed him. Did that bother you a bit? He died on the spot. Boom, you're dead. Isn't part of you going, wait a second. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Good thing he was there. He caught the ark. Saying, Gene, are you making this up? Take a look. 2 Samuel verse, chapter 6, verse 7. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence. He died there by the ark of God. One theological word. Yikes. Yikes. You've got to be uncomfortable with this. And frankly, I'm glad I wasn't near the ark. I think my instinct had done the same thing. So would you. And I'm really uncomfortable by his irreverence. Wait a second. Wasn't it his sincere reverence that caused him to reach out and protect the symbol of God's holiness? So didn't that, the, whole, the whole episode, doesn't it kind of wig you out a little bit? Doesn't it kind of make you uncomfortable? The problem, God made clear. No one was supposed to touch the ark, Period. Under no circumstances. See, this zero tolerance policy gives us again the holiness of God. He is separate. We can't look upon things the way we look upon them. He is separate because he is holy. Couldn't God just overlook this? I mean, consider the guy's motives. Why can't God be tolerant of people's mistakes the way we are? Well, no, he's not. We tolerate sin in ourselves. We tolerate sin in others. We kind of judge ourselves versus other people. I'm way better than that guy. But we're to set ourselves up against his holiness. This is a major problem. 
Because now we are to set ourselves up against not each other. Hey, I'm better than Hitler. But we have to set ourselves up against his holiness. And then he comes along and says, I have created a perfect place, heaven. It is the absolute perfection, and nobody can get in unless they're perfect. You can look at it logically. If someone can somehow get into heaven that's not perfect, then heaven's not perfect. So you've got to be perfect to qualify for heaven. I don't know what you people are going to do. <laughs> hey, I'm in the same boat. So Scripture basically tells us, this book of good news basically tells us we're all doomed. We can't make it. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. It's very clear at this point. So, you know, the, the bus just ran over me and you. Because he says, you're judged against my holiness, and I've created a place of perfection, and no one who's not perfect can get in, because if somebody who's not perfect gets in, it's no longer a perfect place. You are doomed. So, he come along and says, therefore, I will present a Savior. You ever wonder why at the judgment, and I don't know what the judgment is. I, it's beyond my imagination, but it exists. Did you ever wonder why at the judgment bar of God, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father? Does he just want a good seat? Does he have a purpose there? Why does the Bible call him our advocate? Why is he there? And why did the Father, who is separate, say to Jesus, you now hold the keys to heaven and hell? Well, the answer is very simple. Supposing this is me. Think, Gene, you lost weight. Back to the notes. At that judgment, Jesus comes along to me and says, Father, I'm going to cover Gene. Would you see him in me? Let my perfection be his ticket. He's come to me for forgiveness. I am his personal savior. I am his advocate. That, that's why we have wording in the Bible that sometimes it kind of gets weird, covered by his blood. Your first thought is, yeah. Or the Father sees us in Christ. That's why we have that kind of wording. That's why he's at the right hand of the Father. This is why he says, I'm the only way. Because I am the key. Holy has come that he might be my savior. That the Father can see me in Christ. That's why he's at the right hand of the Father. Because Hebrew says, he is my high priest. He's my advocate. A holy one has come. Because we need a savior. The separateness between us and God, human race, started in the Garden of Eden. Sin separates from the holy. Sin separates from perfect. So we need a new start. We, 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 need, to, we need to start all over again. We need almost like a second Adam to bring us back. That's why Jesus is some called, sometimes called second Adam. He restores this relationship because God is separate. Angels around the throne, holy, holy, holy. They might as well say separate, separate, separate from everything you've created. And so sin enters through one guy and death because of one guy. One disobedient act. That's what Romans chapter 5, verse 12, wants you to see it. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. C.K. Chesterton wrote, Sin is the only part of Christian theology that can be proved. Sin is the only part of Christian theology that can be proved. If you don't believe it, look around, or better yet, look at yourself. 
We need someone to restore us, bring us back. That's why Advent's so huge. Praise the one who came in a simple manger. He said, I will bring you back. I will restore you. The second Adam has come in simplicity of a manger. Yeah, Christmas is a big deal. Yeah, Advent is a big deal. So much more than Christmas carols and Christmas ham. That first Adam, something interesting happened at that first sin. After they sinned, the first thing that happened, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loin coverings. Sin always produces guilt. One of those 100%, no exception. Sin always produces guilt. And guilt tends to create a need for covering. We try to excuse the guilt. We try to excuse the sin. We try to cover the sin rather than seek holy forgiveness. The very same thing Adam and Eve did. We've got to be careful. Do not reinvent Jesus. What do I say we find out who he is? Know Jesus. So that we might actually worship him. God gives incredibly specific instructions. And let me tell you, he ain't kidding. We see that through Uzzah. He demands that they're to be followed to the letter. Why? Because he's holy. God commanded Noah build an ark. He didn't say, oh, go build the thing. He gave everything short of blueprints, size, materials, number of decks, even number of doors. He gave Moses instructions for this tabernacle, this moving church, this moving worship center, down to, all the way down to specific designs for the garments to be worn by the priests. God gave Israelites specific instructions for their offerings and the sacrifices they would offer. He never said, give what you want. I'm more interested in the heart. No! He gave clear requirements concerning every one of those sacrifices, every one of those offerings. So the message is pretty clear. He is incredibly specific. If you want to be right with God, it's on his terms, not yours. Because he's holy. The one Lamb of God, the second Adam, our Savior, born in a manger, the dominant attribute of Jesus. He is holy. Now, okay, attributes of Jesus. If I, what comes to your mind when I say, what's Jesus like? Your, your first thought's probably going to be forgiving, uh, loving, gentle, compassionate, all true. Praise God. Everyone, not, not taking away any of that, all true. Give me one more. Let, let me add one more word to your vocabulary about Jesus. How does this strike you? Intolerant. Ooh. All right, blasphemy on Sunday morning. <laughs> okay, go back to Jericho. Remember the walls of Jericho came tumbling down? Joshua 6.21 tells us what God said, what you're going to do. God says, after you've taken the city... Kill them all! Destroy all the men, all the women, all the young, all the old, all the ox, all the sheep, all the donkey by the sword. Again, yikes! Kill them all! Even the animals? God saw the Canaanites' idolatrous worship as a potential cancer in the life of this nation. It had to be eradicated. Why? Because he's holy. Because he is separate. He doesn't think like we do. He isn't tolerant. He's holy. He's not even politically correct. We've got to be very careful. Don't create a Jesus we like and worship that one. 
The world that Jesus entered into was loaded with Roman gods. I mean, they, they, they had God, different gods for everything you can think of. I call it the Baskin-Robbins of God. Choose the flavor you like, we got it. And against this really polytheistic background, Jesus comes and he says, I'm not a good teacher. I am, but that's not the key. I'm not one more prophet. I am, but that's not the key. I'm not one more. I am not another God. I am the holy God. Period. Whoa, the Pharisees love that. And then Jesus messed with the Pharisees. He said, on top of that, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm their God. This threw the Jews into hatred all the way to the cross. The climax of this conversation, I think it's found in John chapter 8. Let me summarize. It's a confrontation, Pharisees and Jesus. I know, shocking. And the Pharisees, in an argument, you kind of hold back that trump card till you want to play it. And the Pharisees now are saying it's time to take him down a notch. Because we got the trump card. No one is more revered than Abraham. John chapter 8, verse 53. The Pharisees said, you're certainly not greater than our father Abraham. Look at Jesus' response. John 8, 56. It's already up. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. They're saying, you can't be greater than Abraham. And Jesus says, hey, by the way, Abraham was glad to see me again. Yikes. Now the Pharisees are confused. Abraham's been dead for thousands of years. You're about 30. And you claim to have seen Abraham? 858. Truly, I say, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, the kicker of that verse is in the Greek. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, that is the same in the Hebrew, the same wording, the same context as when Moses said, who are you? And the father said, I am. Jesus is not just saying, I knew Abraham, and Abraham was glad to see me. He ends it by saying, I am. He's not merely the God of Abraham. He is the I am. Now, Jesus says, I am. How did the Pharisees take that, by the way? Well, John 8, 59, they pick up stones to throw, that they might kill him. But don't miss the point here. Jesus has just dropped the bomb. Those two words. Jesus says, I am the Holy One. This has happened more, more times from then on. The Pharisees are fishing in the Sea of Galilee. These guys are fishermen. Storms come up in the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is a weird place. It's in a valley and there are mountains around it. Winds can come around those mountains and turn a calm sea into a deadly sea pretty quick. One of those times, that sea is, is raging. And in its raging, the experienced fishermen realize this is not a storm. This is a death storm. They've got those rickety old boats back then. And they realize people die in this kind of a storm. They're prepared to die. And Jesus starts walking out on the water towards them. And they realize they don't think it's Jesus. They realize we're about to die. Peter yells out, here comes the death angel. The ghost of death is on its way. Jesus calms them. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, I'm sure he said, whoa, whoa, don't worry about it, I'm here. Kind of sounds like his jersey, doesn't it? I gotcha. What did Jesus say to them? I am is here. Whoa. The 
power of that. Jesus walking on the water says, I am is here. He is the I am. He is the Holy One. On the night of his betrayal, on that kangaroo court, the high priest Caiaphas cuts to the chase. Mark 14, 61. Are you the Christ, the blessed one? You ever, you ever look carefully at Jesus' response? 14, 62, the very next verse. I am. Therefore, and in the future, you'll see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God, the powerful one, and coming in the clouds. Jesus' response is, I am. And I'm going to be on the right hand of the Father. Again, yikes. This one, born in a manger, through the Virgin Mary, is I am. He is the Holy One on the right hand of the Holy Father that reconciles us to Him. He is the great I am, but Jane, does that make Him intolerant? Well, besides zero tolerance to sin, He makes a pretty intolerant statement. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not a way with a lot of paths to the Father. He is not a truth versus a lot of other truths. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus. Period. Because he is the only one at the right hand of the Father. He's the only one that we're covered in his perfection. He is the only one with the keys to heaven and hell. No one gets to the Father except through me. That's, in our culture today, that's intolerance. He's saying, everybody else is wrong. It's me. No one gets to the Father except through me. We are seen in Christ to the Father who is separate and holy. The dominant attribute to understand as we go into Christmas is holy came. That might seem kind of intolerant to non-followers because Satan tries to create so many other false doors. Jesus stops every one of them. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The second Adam has come for this purpose, path to the holy, the path to the Father. Our Savior makes some things pretty clear. In order to be a Savior, Savior means Saving from something. Doesn't it? If he's a savior, the next question we've got to ask, what does a holy Christ save us from? If, if he's a savior. We're told of the story of the rich man and poor man. Poor guy by the name of Lazarus. Both died. But they didn't share the same destiny. Luke 16, 22 to 24. Now the poor man died was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, and he was buried in Hades. The rich man lifted his eyes, being in torment, saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. I am in agony in this flame. So Jesus has made clear there are two very real potential eternal destinies. He teaches that one of those is hell. Of the 1,830 verses of Jesus speaking, 13% of them, he talks about hell. He not only makes clear that he is the singular path for eternity, all, all of our hope, all of our faith is rooted in him. He covers us. He also makes clear there are alternatives. We don't want them. We don't have to have them. 
And I love the fact this guy in Haiti says, let me go warn my family. Come on. He would be the greatest evangelist of all time, wouldn't he? This guy would be an incredible preacher. He would tell the story and blow their mind. He would be the greatest evangelist of all time. But he's told by Abraham, no. Luke 16, 26. There's a great chasm fixed. So that those which come, wish to come over here that is not possible. None may cross over. Some even teach that eternity in hell is temporary. They ignore this passage. Why have a Savior if we don't know what he's saving us from? The great theologian, Dr. Dorothy Sayers, writes, There almost seems to be a kind of conspiracy among young writers with a liberal tendency to forget or conceal the doctrine of hell where it came from. This doctrine is not medieval. It is Jesus. It's not a device that medieval priests use for frightening people to giving more money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin because he is holy. We cannot deny hell without also denying Christ. Oh. Jesus teaches the reality of eternity in hell, but he reminds us the good news. I am the way. I am the way. He loves. There's never been anybody that didn't matter to Jesus. I have a, a unique deal in the, in the guys and in, in funeral directors in Valparaiso. I have a relationship with them. I've been there 25 years. If there's a family that does not have a church, doesn't have a pastor, doesn't have anybody, but they want a pastor, they'll call me and say, can you, can you, can you step in? So I, I, consequently, I do not a lot, but a few funerals of people who have no pastor, no church, no, no, no one to call on to, as a spiritual, no spiritual history. I got to tell you something. Those funerals are different. There's a sadness beyond natural grief with Christ. We live in peace and hope. The second Adam has come to bring you to the Father. Born of a Virgin Mary, in a manger, the I am is here to love, to seek, and to save. The Savior has come. I am is here, and we celebrate. Let me have a word of prayer with you. Father, there's a reality here. Christmas is an intense celebration. At the same time, it's a serious, serious event. I am the holy has chosen to come. And there may, there may be some even here right now before we begin to take communion, which is a holy act, saying, I never thought of it in those terms. I've judged myself and evaluated myself against other people, but never against holy. God in heaven, where I have sinned, forgive me. Father, I realize it's, I'm not responsible for anybody's answer. Our responsibility is to ask, have I a Savior? Do I have a Savior? Or have Satan somehow been really effective in keeping me so busy doing other things and somehow you ended up in a back seat? You're like in a backpack of my life and you're not really in my life, but if I need you, I'll, I'll, I'll pull you out. Father, as we go into Christmas this week and celebrate the reality that I am is here, forgive me. 
may I celebrate the I am is for me. Before we go into communion, I love that we quote scripture together. You probably guessed the verse we want to quote together. Say it with me. I am the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father but through me. Period. And we remember that this Jesus came to die. Holy went to the cross. And the night before, he had the last Passover. And we continue to recognize and celebrate. Let me read to you from Luke, beginning with the 14th verse, 22nd chapter. When the hour had come, he sat down with his apostles with him. He said to them, I desire to just pass over with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I'll not eat any more of the bread until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took the cup and gave thanks. Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine till the kingdom of God is fulfilled. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Gave to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the cup, after the supper, this cup is the covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. As you are ready, I want to invite you to the table this morning.